Now it's time for the Disney View podcast. Please move across your car to make room for everyone. Our podcast will begin momentarily. Join Dave as he makes his grand circle tour around the Walt Disney World Resort. Dave is a dreamer and an engineer who enjoys the magic and wonder of it all, but understands Disney's place in history and respects the legacy that's been left. Come along and hear Dave's thoughts about Walt Disney World and see it through Dave's eyes. Please stand clear of the podcaster. Por favor, manténganse alejado del David. And now, here's your host. Hey everyone, it's Dave. Welcome to another edition of Dave's Disney View Podcast. On today's podcast, I wanted to talk about something that was a really interesting part of what Epcot was when the theme park was built. And that's called Communicore. Communicore was this idea, this concept that went beyond sort of what we were thinking about with Epcot because it, it brought together all of the things that the technological part of Future World had and all of the things that happened in World Showcase in a way. So remember that I've talked about before, Ray Bradbury had this idea of how we bring people and technology together to build something. Well, Communicore was the hub of that. Communicore stood for Community Core, which was the idea that the Imagineers came up with to kind of bring that, that concept together. So it was two semicircular buildings that kind of hung off of the side of, they didn't really attach to it, but kind of hung off to the side of Spaceship Earth. And so they were kind of directed towards Spaceship Earth to kind of build that sort of uh, nature of how it, we're interconnected in a way. So basically, they would bring together ideas and concepts that would be offered by all of the other pavilions around the entirety of Epcot. The emphasis of Communicore was really on educating the public about computers. Remember that Epcot was conceived in the late 1970s as construction started and opened in 1982. So when you think about all of the things that would come together at that point, most people had never seen a computer. Certainly there were no computers on everyone's desk. This was new, this was something intriguing. So Epcot, Disney, saw this opportunity to teach people about computers. And one of the things that they had there was Computer Central. And Computer Central was a location where they had all of the computers that controlled the animatronics throughout the park. And you could go in and look at it. So this is the first time you could really interact with something and see what was going on. So let's take a look at Communicore and talk a little bit about what was in it. So there were two semicircular shaped buildings that kind of came away from Spaceship Earth, as I said. They were known as Communicore East and Communicore West. They were designated that way simply because of their orientation relative to geographic position. Pretty simple and straightforward. So the East side was the one that was closest to the universe of energy. And why that was interesting was one of the exhibits they had there was the energy exchange. This, like the universe of energy, was sponsored by Exxon. And it was seen as a companion to what the universe of energy was. There was a miniature oil rig model, and there were all these different exhibits and displays where you could find out about energy, how energy is produced, how energy is used, what it takes to light a light bulb, how many watts it takes, how much energy that is, because you could hand crank something. It was part science museum and part theme park. Here's the way I look at what was there in the entirety of the Communicore. 
it was sort of edutainment, you know, that educational entertainment where you're learning something without realizing you're learning it because you're there and you're actually seeing something firsthand and you're touching it and you're getting your hands on it. Very sciencey, science museum sort of place. And, and, and I think that's why it spoke to me in a way, because it was that sort of hands-on, I'm going to learn something while I'm here. And I just thought that was so cool. Now, beyond the energy exchange, there was something they called the Electronic Forum. And this allowed guests to put in an opinion about something. They would take you into a giant room, like an auditorium. They would ask you questions. And on the armrest of the seat you were in, there was a series of buttons. They were lettered like A through E. And they would put a question up on the board. You would press your answer. And then they would collect all that data and display on the screen what the answer was that the guests who were sitting in the room had come up with. Now, this may sound like a very simplistic thing. By today's standards, you know, 40 years later, you look at it and you go, yeah, okay, that's nice. But really, this was the first time this had ever happened. It was really kind of neat because no one had ever done this before, where you were collecting data in real time from a population and displaying it on a screen. You were using computers to calculate all these things. Then it would do percentages and it would tell you what was going on. So it took it much further than just giving you the results. It was very cool and it was all about things in society. It was about energy, it was about political situations. Uh, sometimes it was sort of trivial questions that just sort of got people thinking a little bit. There was a person of the century poll that was posted right outside of it. And the person in the century poll was kind of funny. They had talked about wanting to know by the year 2000 who the person of the century was gonna be. So for the first eight or nine years that this was open, they were collecting this information. Then they quietly closed it and never announced who the person of the century was. There's a lot of speculation that people were writing in a candidate and voting on it. So the winner may have been somebody who you would not expect or maybe not even a real person. So they closed it quietly without ever telling us who the winner was. And that's kind of funny because the 20th century, who would be the person of the century? I don't know. I don't know who, who would have won that. Hmm. What would the population think? There were also some other assorted computer displays around where you could play some games, you could uh, play around with some ideas and concepts. There, were, there was like a, a thing where you could create your own flag by dragging certain pieces of the flag together and making it in a sort of a factory setting. There were quizzes about the park. There was something about loading airplanes and baggage onto airplanes. There was this really cool thing called Computer Coaster that was hosted by a beaver kind of oddly. And with him, you would create a roller coaster based on a series of predefined shapes. And then it would show you what those shapes looked like as it came together as a roller coaster. And you would ride it virtually by just watching the movement through it. It was actually really cool. And I spent a lot of time playing with that because it's the first time you saw a sort of rendering of something that you were creating. I'd never seen anything like that before. It was really, really cool. There was a sculpture near the entrance on the north side closest to Spaceship Earth that was a population counter. And it was supposed to show you what the population was that would be estimated in the United States as of that moment in time. So consider that for a moment. You know, it seems like an easy to do, but every four years, we have a census that we do to get an actual population or a pretty close approximation of it. What the computer engineers did at the time was they did a calculation to figure out what the population growth was looking like then broke it down into minute-by-minute minute calculations so it would update based on whatever the last census data was, and this minute it could calculate what the number should be for the population. 
It was actually kind of clever. And as we did more censuses and had a number, they would update their algorithm to try to figure out how to adjust for it. It was actually very, very cool. It was one of those things, if you stopped and thought about it for a minute, it really was pretty neat. There was also something called Smart One. Now this seemed like a really cool piece of technology. There was a robot that was sitting there and he would talk to you and interact with you and basically do question and answer sessions with you. So when you looked at it, you thought, what is this? But for whatever reason, because of the voice modulation they did or whatever, it was kind of compelling. Now, of course, it turned out that this was just a fictitious thing. There was a person who was sitting just off stage who was watching you and talking to you and actually was just interacting with you person to person, but he's, with the voice modulation and the fact that you were looking at a robotic figure that was moving a little bit and articulated, it felt like you were actually talking to a robot. And the robot was actually pretty cool and would you know, interact in some way and would make some intentional mistakes just to make sure that you didn't believe that it was an actual person. But of course it was. That actually became the precursor for what you see today at like the Monsters, Inc. Laugh Floor, where it's this interactive exhibit and it's actually moving something on the screen. This didn't move on the screen. It just had very simple articulations. Its eyes blinked and his head rolled back and forth and whatever. But the principle was the same. It was somebody backstage talking to you and interacting with you in a fun way. But the hallmark of Communicore East had to be the backstage magic show. They told you the story about how computers controlled all of the elements in the park. Then they took you into a room, they rolled up a screen, and they showed you those computers. And if you really wanted to know more about it, they were giving you information. They were enlightening you about how it all worked. It was really, really cool. Now, in the first two years that this was open, they actually called it the Astuter Computer Review. And what they had was a Sherman Brothers song that was written. And the Sherman Brothers song was cute, but kind of silly, but it actually talked about computers in a kind of a funny way. And there was a guy with a British accent who was singing the song. And what they did was they actually used the Pepper's ghost effect where they had a uh, video of him that they shined down and it looked like he was dancing on top of the computers while he was singing to you. So the people in the control room that were actually there with the computers, they couldn't see him. And they couldn't see you because it was one way glass looking the other way. So they were just working in the room. They didn't know the difference. But here was this little figure that was dancing on top of the computers. It was so clever and such a cool use of technology, and you learned something about what these computers could do. You see, my friends, the computer makes life easier. <laughs> Saves me time and headaches, too. He sorts things out, analyzes in a shake. My enormous problem to him's a piece of cake. He's got a great big memory like an elephant. Utilizes knowledge without end. That's why I'm a router for me computer. Everybody needs a friend. When my work piles up and I'm seeing red, cause I need five arms and an extra head, I find the computer becomes me troubleshooter. He keeps miles and miles of facts on file. My wish is his command. Nothing is astuter than a computer when I need 
A helping hand? Let me explain. They keep on top of accommodations, record and update reservations, coordinate telephone operations, and help plan energy conservation. They're really a great financial device. Payroll service is kept precise. They project attendance, then give advice on personnel, food, and merchandise. They're constantly focusing all their attention on matters of safety and fire prevention. They've given efficiency new dimension with numerous examples too many to mention. <sighs> And that's why I'm a router for me computer. Everybody needs a friend. You see, my friends, the computer does the drudgery. Leaves me free for better things. I push some buttons and in and off a mo. What was a sticky wicket? Becomes an easy go. He's got a great big memory lock and elephant. How he works is hard to comprehend. Complicated computations take him just a tick. He coordinates and tabulates and does it double quick. And that's why I'm a router for me computer. Everybody needs a friend. No need to stand, no need to stand. Now, after a couple of years, in 1984, to be exact, they changed the show to be the Backstage Magic Show with your host, Julie, who took you around and showed you all these different things about computers. They did use the same effect with her, where she wound up standing on top of a computer and telling you some of the story. And they also had a sequence with Mr. Egg from the Kitchen Cabaret, who would do a little bit of a sequence for you. And they'd show you how the audio animatronics worked. So it was actually very, very clever. Now again, here they did some animations, some other fun things in the background, and were kind of teaching you something, again, educating and entertaining at the same time, about how all of this worked, how computers worked, how it all came together, what they can do for your future. They made a couple of bold predictions that turned out to be true, which was kind of neat. And they showed you a piece of technology that you could use throughout the park, and that was this interactive kiosk. So they had these laser discs with information about Epcot that you could go up to a touch screen, you could touch the screen, you could do some things with it, and it would go to the laser disc and read it, bring back information. But you could get to a point where you could actually talk to a live person. And they had a video phone so that you could actually connect with that live person, ask more detailed questions, make a dining reservation, do some of the things that you might do with a, uh, an agent or a cast member who you wanted to, to uh, talk to. You could walk over to underneath Spaceship Earth. There was another place where there were live people you could talk to and make reservations and so forth. But this was a way you could do it in real time in the park. And you can make the case that with the touch screens and with the video calling and the ability to connect with someone, Disney got ahead of the game and actually had something that was more like what you see in cell phones today. Now, Disney was working closely with several different companies, AT&T, Univac, some other companies that had the big presence at the time to create this future. So when you look at these things, you go, wow, this is really neat because they were actually connecting something that otherwise you probably would have never seen. And in a way, these companies got to experience what the spirit of Epcot, Walt's original idea was all about. They were coming up with these concepts. They had done them, you know, AT&T had Bell Labs where they'd experiment with all kinds of things, but they didn't have a place to prototype it in a large environment. But by going to Disney World, they could prototype this. They could work with the Disney Imagineers, they could work with others, and they can actually create this, put it on display, and make it work so that you could actually see it, touch it, and feel it. Kind of cool. So in a sense, 
Epcot came together because they were talking about these things that actually worked and were interactive in a way that were still experimental at that point. Sperry and Univac with their computers. Sperry had acquired Univac along the way, and then they changed their name to Unisys in more recent times, so it's the same company. But they have this, this connection where they were building these large mainframe computers, and they were building these interactive sort of pieces where you could actually get to the data more quickly. And your data el entry elements were easier than they were before. Up until the mid to late 1970s, these were still punch cards that were being used or very rudimentary terminals where you would punch in certain things and you would get data back and you'd get a printout or something else that would work. Here was the first time where you're actually seeing a mainframe display where you had a computer and a, and a monitor which would actually connect to that mainframe so you could punch something in and it would give you back information in real time right on the screen. You didn't have to put the cards out and then wait for them to run. In real time, within seconds, you could have data back. Today, you think about it and you go, whatever, that's so simple. I'm touching my phone, I'm getting data. Back in like 1980 or 81, that really didn't exist that way. So it was amazing what Sperry Univac did at that point in time to bring that all together. Again, showcasing technology that no one had seen to that point. So it's pretty remarkable what they were doing. Now over in Communicore West, the other building, they had other exhibits. So the first was this Age of Information. It was a musical diorama that showed how advances in technology connect our world. Now, I have to admit, I didn't find this all that compelling. That was kind of like, yeah, okay, that's nice. It's, you know, it's not that interesting, but it was fun to look at for a minute or two. More interesting was the fountain of information, this kinetic sculpture using lights and colors to illustrate the vast interconnected world we live in. And there was an intelligent network map which had a large interactive map of the United States that showed how things were connected to one another. So you had these little kiosks out in front of you. There was maybe six or eight of them in front of this map. And by touching that kiosk, you could update the big map on the wall. It was really pretty neat. You could see some really interesting things that were going on there. And if you think about sort of today, when you look at the map that some of the cell phone carriers put out there where they show you their map of connectivity, this was very much like that, but way before cell phones came into play. How were things connected? How were things, how can you get from, call from Florida to California? Well, you have to go through the trunk lines and make your way out there. Similar sort of concept, just a much earlier revision of it. There was another section called the Epcot Discovery Center where it was sort of that Epcot outreach. And it was a library and information. They had cast members there who could answer questions, provide guidance and some training materials for teachers. And they could, you could explore the themes of Future World. Remember that Future World was going to be growing, always growing, always changing. That was the intent. In fact, if you look at the two buildings, if you look at pictures of the buildings, since they don't exist anymore, you could see that behind it, there was space to expand outward. Some of the walls were removable, so they could actually expand out if they wanted to, to make it bigger, to put in different things. They never really did, but the concept was certainly there. And so this idea of sharing in future world was part of the whole dynamic of what Epcot really was. There was also a travel port where American Express travel agents were there to help you talk to you about vacations and other places outside of Disney World to help you book travel arrangements or to think about what you're going to do, what you might do when you go home. There were a few other things that were there and there was one section in particular where they had like an arcade where it was almost like little um, computer games that were there that ultimately was going to be a Tron-related arcade, 
never really got built, but then became this Expo Robotics, where they brought in some of these mechanical robot arms to do some very complicated tasks that made it put on a little show. So you could see how they, they did things. They would spin uh, balls, they would make things kind of come together, they would, you know, create something, right? I think they had a place where they could actually draw pictures and do some things like that. So it was kind of neat because they were able to do something interesting that was uh, very different, right? It was sort of uh, unique and interesting and you really got to see how these robotic arms worked. Something nobody had ever seen before. You'd hear about them, but you never saw them in action. There were two restaurants inside of the Communicorn. One was the Sunrise Terrace, which was sort of a little bakery. Uh, that was on the West, Communicore West side that actually was kind of uh, kind of nice and you can go in there and get a little snack. And then there was the Stargate restaurant, which was in the east side. And that was the full service restaurant that was like all the other restaurants you would find in say the Magic Kingdom, where they had a collection of different things, burgers, pizzas, whatever. There was one shop that was in the east side of Communicore and that was called the Centorium. Now the name may sound familiar. It sounds like Emporium, it's, but it's for the century. It's for the next millennium. It's the future version of the Emporium. And honestly, it looked kind of like the Emporium in a way. It was more futuristic, but it kind of felt Emporium-like. It was large, it had a lot of different merchandise in there. More of it was maybe space-themed or had you know some things that thought about the future. And it was more glass and open-aired instead of being uh, this wooden, kind of old-timey place. This was really interesting and futuristic looking. And the really cool part about it was, it was two stories. The second part, second floor, actually had additional merchandise. You could go up there and shop. There were no other stores at Disney that had a second floor. So this was actually kind of neat that you could go up there and uh, shop around a little bit and do something kind of unusual. So that's kind of how it all came together. That was the nature of what Communicore was. Now, there's a couple of other little nuggets I'll share with you. The first is that the intent was to create something like the Magic Kingdom in the sense of, the Communicore was actually created on the second level. It's, you know, it's a short first level, first floor below it, but the intent was to be able to distribute things into the future world in the way that Walt had envisioned. All the services would happen underneath the Epcot. So you have that space where all the merchandise comes in, where the computers are stored, where all the things are. So you're above that when you're in Epcot. So that was kind of neat. There was also the principle that they had intended or planned to put the people mover throughout Epcot. The people mover, of course, was the way you would move people between short distances. The monorail would be for long distances. The people mover would be for short distances. So if you look around a lot of Epcot, they had planned for sort of a second level on a lot of buildings where there would have been space where you could have had a people mover come through. Communicore was no exception. If you, when you look at the pictures of it, you see that the ceilings were kind of high and there were some support beams that seemed kind of awkward for the purpose they served. The intent was later to come back and put a people mover track that would go through Communicore. And that way you could get there, get off, go look around, and then go off to somewhere else if you wanted to. Similarly, like over at the land pavilion, if you go in there, you see that there's these high archways. Those were intended to be people mover places. Those were intended to be people mover stops so that you could actually get to the different places around Future World on the people mover. It was actually very, very clever and well thought out, but never came to pass. So I wanted to share those couple of things because I thought they were really worthwhile mentioning. Now, in 1993 and 94, Disney decided it was time to move on after a decade or so 
from Communicore. But they liked the idea of having some sort of interactive exhibit, so they decided to retheme it to call it Innoventions. Innovative inventions, something like that. Innovative creations, something, right? Where it was this idea of still using thought, but maybe pairing it back a little bit. They didn't have the same sponsorships at that point. AT&T had pulled out. Univac was not there anymore in the same sense. So Disney had to figure out how to use that space and scale it back, given that they didn't have the same level of support. So things were a little different. Part of it was walled off in different places. Part of it had been closed off and the exhibits changed a bit. So you had different things in technology had evolved too. So you didn't want to show the same sorts of things. They had already shuttered all the uh, interactive displays and the things that went on that I talked about where you could uh, touch the screen and it would show you something and then you could uh, talk to a person in real time somewhere else. That was long gone by that point. So a lot of that was different. The backstage magic, they didn't really want to show you that anymore because the technology was changing, the computers had gotten smaller and they didn't have that same oomph. And you'd seen a computer by now. It's 1993, you, you've seen a computer, you may even have one. So the internet was coming into play. So this is not the time to continue to talk about computers as there's something new. So the exhibits all changed to other things. The one thing that was kind of cool that they did though, the one that was the exhibit that was the roller coaster design, they kept that to a point and actually changed it to be sort of this virtual reality thing where they'd sit you in a car, you design the roller coaster, much as you did before, but they'd sit you in this sort of hanging car, put this thing down over the top of you, and then they'd move you around a little bit as though you were actually on the roller coaster. So you could see what it looked like because you had already designed it, but rather than just seeing it on a two-dimensional screen, now they were moving you in three dimensions and making you feel like you're actually riding on that roller coaster that you designed. I thought that was really clever. What a cool use of technology to evolve it further from what they had. You've seen these since then at other places. They're at science museums. I've seen them at shopping malls. It's the same principle where they have something that they just put you on and they take you through sort of a three-dimensional representation and you feel like you're actually moving like that. It's kind of cool. It's very clever. But that was as far as anything that was interesting in the intervention sense. I didn't go in there very much after Communicore closed. Have to be honest, I wasn't really excited about it. I went in there once or twice and was like, yeah, this is nice, but it was missing that interactive element, that sense of wonder, that thing that really captured you and made you feel like you were learning something. That edutainment wasn't there anymore. Yeah, there were some things that you were still learning, but it just wasn't the same. It was a sort of a toned down version of that. So it's unfortunate, but that's the way it went. And then of course, in more recent times, in the last couple of years, they've demolished both of the Communicore buildings and they're building sort of a different idea for what Epcot will be. So it won't be that same sense of discovery and wonder. Yeah, I think they're calling it discovery, I think, but I have my doubts about whether it will be in the same genre or if it will just be about sort of a general discovery. Teach me something, educate me, entertain me, enlighten me. That's what I'm after. And when you do those things and you make it immersive, that's when I'm, I fall in love with the park and I really enjoy it and I wanna keep going back again and again. But if you make it all thrill rides, I'm not gonna be as engaged, I won't be as enthused, and well, I may not go back as much as a result of that. So keep me engaged, make it interesting for me, make it immersive, make it compelling. That's my story, and I'm sticking to it. One little spark of inspiration is at the heart <laughs> of all creation. Right at the start of everything that's new. One little spark lights up for you. For my One Little Spark segment today, 
I wanted to take a couple of minutes and talk about this great inventor who happened to be born after the Civil War. People refer to him as the Black Thomas Edison. He had many great inventions, but I'm going to guess that you probably never heard of him. If I gave you the name Granville Woods, you'd probably say, I don't know who that is. And that's the remarkable thing. This man was on a par with Edison in terms of his intelligence and the things that he was able to create. And he tussled with Edison a couple of times in his life. But yet he's not remembered for anything that he did. And that's part of our history, too, that we have to embrace. This understanding that different people from different backgrounds didn't always get the credit they were due. So there's a story in the Northern Kentucky Tribune. Our rich history, Granville Woods, the Black Thomas Edison, was noted inventor and held many patents. In 1888, Granville Woods, a highly respected black inventor, was unmercifully beaten by Louisville and Nashville Railroad employees. Woods had purchased a first-class ticket on the L&N from Cincinnati to Nashville, and during the first leg of that journey to Louisville, sat in a relative comfort in first class. Upon arriving in Louisville, however, the new crew objected to a colored man riding through the dark and bloody ground, the South, in first class and attempted to eject him from the car. When Woods resisted, the crew beat him. Of all the possible ironies in history, this incident should be recorded in the history books. After all, it was Granville Woods' many inventions that literally made American railroads safe, fast, and efficient. One of his principal patents, in fact, enabled instantaneous telegraphic communications between the conductors of moving trains and station masters. Thanks to Woods, at any time, railroads could keep track of where their trains were, thereby preventing unnecessary collisions. By 1904, Granville Woods held 35 patents. In the United States, a patent is a property right granted by the federal government. It gives the inventor the right to benefits of commercialization of their invention. Patents provide innovators an incentive to invent by owning the fruits of their intellectual labor for a specific period of time. Despite the huge hurdles in U.S. history for minorities in in obtaining patents, Granville T. Woods, who lived from 1856 to 1910, was one of the most noteworthy African-American inventors in the entire United States. As a black man, he encountered substantial racial obstacles of his time. Ultimately, however, he prevailed, gaining an honorable title as the Black Thomas Edison. Woods devoted his primary research to modernizing railway technology and eventually was granted 45 U.S. patents in his name. He received his first patent for new useful improvements in steam boiler furnaces while working as an electrical engineer in Cincinnati in 1884. Early biographies and contemporary newspaper accounts of his time reported that Woods was born in Columbus, Ohio, on April 23, 1856. Subsequently, recent research substantiates that Woods was likely born in Melbourne, Australia, which is kind of interesting. This claim is substantiated by the 1910 U.S. Census records, Woods' death certificate, and other published accounts. Woods' maternal grandfather was of Malay Indian descent. His two other grandparents were Australian Aborigines, while it's assumed by most researchers that his remaining grandparent was African American. All sources concur that Woods spent his childhood in Columbus, Ohio, where his parents were free blacks. When he was 10 years old, Woods began to learn the machinist and blacksmith trades. He had dropped out of school, but his mechanical aptitudes led him to various jobs while he was a teenager, including the Danville and Southern Railroad in Missouri and at a rolling mill in Springfield, Illinois. Many biographical sketches and news stories maintain that he completed some type of electrical and mechanical engineering education in the Eastern United States, and ultimately Woods gained a knowledge of basic principles of electronics, chemistry, and physics. But so far, no one has produced any records to say that he graduated high school or that he graduated college. It's really hard to find this information on someone who was kept down for such a long period of time. It's really hard to find information about the man, 
especially given the time he was living in and how blacks were treated, especially in the educational sense. So we don't actually know when he graduated high school, when he went to college, where he went to college, or anything else for that matter. Woods arrived in Cincinnati in 1880, where he established his own machine shop. Soon he began to tinker with an idea about inductive communications, sometimes known as wireless telegraphy. Woods' most significant patented inventions were developed in Cincinnati, including an apparatus for transmission of messages by electricity, in 1885. This patent was purchased by the American Bell Telephone Company of Boston a few years later. In 1887, Woods was granted patents for induction telegraphy, also known as multiplex telegraphy, and an improvement on railway telegraphy. These inventions were fostered by, by Faraday's law of electromagnetic induction. The induction telegraph patent was the first that allowed moving trains to communicate while in transit. Michael Christopher states that the invention of the induction telegraph saved countless lives in that it averted both major and minor catastrophes in railway travel. Woods marketed his innovative induction telegraph through the Woods Electric Company, which soon was confronted with an obstacle by Edison himself. Lucius J. Phelps of the Phelps Induction Telegraph Company was a business partner and controller of Thomas Edison's train telegraphy patents. Phelps contested Woods in a patent interference case for his induction telegraphy patent. A patent interference is a dispute between inventors trying to patent the same invention. Phelps invented a similar concept published in the Scientific American Journal in 1885. Woods offered evidence and witnesses to prove that he had developed the, his induction telegraphy invention first in 1881, four years before the Scientific American article, and three years before Phelps could prove his documented discovery in 1884. At that time, the United States Patent Office was a first to invent patent submission system, rather than first inventor to file provision as it is today. Phelps and Edison appealed the verdict, but Woods won again and obtained his induction telegraphy U.S. patent in 1887. Woods' connections to Bell and Edison brought notice with the general public. At the time, the January 14, 1886 edition of the Catholic Tribune acclaimed Woods as the greatest inventor in the history of his race and equal, if not superior, to any inventor in the country. Such notice prompted Cincinnati businessmen to support his Woods Electric Company of Ohio. Woods acquired a total of 17 U.S. patents during his tenure in the Cincinnati region. Although he lived in a number of places throughout the Cincinnati area, African-American historian Theodore Harris states that in 1890, Granville Woods moved to New York City along with his brother Light. There, Woods patented additional inventions such as the automatic air brakes and his innovative third rail technology. The third rail invention is still used today by many electric-powered transit systems throughout the world. Unfortunately, Woods met such resistance in the white business culture of his time, forcing him to often sell his patent rights prematurely to survive economically, rather than attempt to market his innovations to benefit his long-term financial standing. During the last 10 years of Woods' life, many of his patents were purchased by the General Electric and Westinghouse companies. The fact that two of the largest corporations of that time bought Woods' patents affirms the value of his breakthroughs and attests to his inventive intellect. Woods died on January 30, 1910 in New York City. The brilliance of Granville Woods is celebrated today in accolades, books, media, and more. One of Woods' original patent documents for an underground electrical railway um, for an underground electrical railway line was sold to a history collector in 2020 by Sotheby's for $3,500, along with blueprints and sketches of his other inventions. Woods was inducted into the National Inventors Hall of Fame in 2006. His legacy also survives as a black scientist character who supports allies in fighting ghosts and evil spirits. The American Institute of Physics published an educational lesson plan entitled African American Inventors in History. The lesson introduces students to the lives of celebrated black inventors such as, such as Granville Woods. So, a brilliant inventor, 
a man with little education, but a lot of smarts, a lot of intelligence. And for whatever reason, he's not recognized in the same way that you think about Thomas Edison. Thomas Edison invented blah, blah, blah. You could debate all day whether Thomas Edison was a great inventor or whether he was really good at cooperating with people who were great inventors and could really promote them. You have to wonder a little bit how somebody like Granville Woods doesn't get the accolades. And it's partly because of where he grew up, when he grew up, and the color of his skin. And it's also partly because he couldn't promote himself in the society he was living in. So it's just a remarkable thing. But anyway, I just wanted to share the story of a remarkable man, Granville Woods. And that is my podcast for this week. I hope you've enjoyed it. And remember, if we can dream it, we can certainly do it. Bye now. Thank you for tuning in to the Disney View podcast. We hope you had a pleasant stay and arrive home safely. Please remain seated until your ride vehicle stops completely. Then, gather your personal belongings and step out onto the moving platform. And yes, I know it went by so quickly, but don't worry. One of the nice things about traveling on this podcast is that the journey is just beginning. Show notes are available on DisneyWorldPodcast.net. While there, please check out some of our affiliates. You'll also find links to Dave's iPhone and iPad apps. There's an app for pin trading, one for finding hidden Mickeys, and an app for finding and tracking pressed pennies around the Walt Disney World Resort. And you never know just what Dave is working on next. If you have questions, feel free to drop Dave an email at davesdisneyview at gmail.com. Original music you're hearing in this podcast is Oslo Doom by Gilberto Gil. Of course, this is a fan podcast and in no way affiliated with the Walt Disney Company. 